You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. And while you're doing that, I just want to give a little bit of an introductory comment on something. I had to bring some notes up into the pulpit with me today, because which is something I, I normally don't do too much of, because I've got some things I needed to read. Uh, normally, I would have these notes on a little electronic uh, tablet thing up here, which is real small. And uh, when I create the paper version of it, I have to use a big font so that when it shrinks down onto a little tablet, I can read it without having to do this all the time. And so if you see me flipping pages up here and you see this huge font... Uh, I don't want you to think to yourself, my goodness, I can read that from the back row. Is Jim going blind? Especially after my comments last week about my glasses and, and not reading. And I figured out what that is, by the way. These are new glasses that I got. My wife insisted that the old ones, well, she, I won't tell you what she said about the old ones, but so she had to get these with bigger lenses. And my body is not used to having to look through these lenses yet. So now when I look down to read, I'm reading down, the, the, the bottom rim of this is right in where I would normally read. So now my head has to adjust, and I either have to read like this or go down like this further, and until that gets worked out, I'm going to sound like I can't read at all. All of that to say, I don't want you, if you see this, to think, wow, he's going blind. We are in John chapter 13. Let's bow together in prayer before we begin. Our gracious God, we are thankful for your word, for the clarity of revelation that it is to us. You have made all of the main things very plain to us, and they are so straightforward in Scripture. We are thankful for the revelation of Jesus Christ, our great God and our Savior, the one who is the divine Son who came to this earth to die on a cross so that we might be redeemed. We thank you for him, that he is our Passover lamb, crucified for us, sacrificed for us, so that his blood might fully and completely atone for all of our sin, that we may be accepted into your presence on the basis of his righteousness through faith. We thank you for that. And it is in his name that we ask you to be our guide to teach us today from your word and send your spirit to instruct us into the truth that we might love you and that we might be enraptured in and with the love of Christ. We ask it in his name. Amen. First John 4.8 says that God is love. And that is one of those statements that is generic enough to be taken in almost uh, any way that one wants to take it. And most unbelievers would actually give hearty assent to that statement that God is love. And if you Go talk to your average garden variety pagan who's just walking by on the street outside after the Sunday service and you say, I believe that God is love. They would give a hearty amen to that. They agree with that. And if you say to them, I believe that God is love and God loves you, of course, they would assent to that too. They would say, of course he does. I'm lovable. I mean, God must be pretty smart if he loves me as much as I love me. I love me. He loves me. We're one big happy family and a knick-knack paddywhack or however that song goes. And they would give hearty assent to that, that concept that God is love. Because the unbeliever can take it in any way that he wants, and most Christians take it in ways that make us feel good. Uh, the error comes in when we think to ourselves, or when in the back of our minds, we say, God is only love. And see, unbelievers will assent to that. God is love, because they are without any understanding of context, as far as what the love of God is, how the love of God is expressed, how the love of God works with His other attributes, and so they would give hearty assent to that because in the back of their minds, they're hearing you say that God is only love and therefore you have nothing to fear. But as Christians, we don't believe that Scripture reveals that God is only love. 
but rather that God is, yes, loving and kind and compassionate and generous and gracious and patient and long-suffering and merciful and good. But God is also holy and righteous and just and pure and truth. And God is also filled with wrath. Scripture says that He is angry with the wicked all day long. And He does not delight in wickedness. In fact, His anger burns against the wicked all day long. So as Christians, we need to keep those two things in balance and always remember that God does not express His attributes in isolation to one another. It is not as if God has to suppress the expression of His justice so that He can express His love. It is not as if God has to suppress His wrath so that He can express His loving kindness or His purity or His gentleness or compassion. God doesn't do a juggling act with His attributes. I'm going to be mad now, and then I'm going to be loving now. And then I'm going to be mad again, and then I'm going to be gentle over here. I'm going to be harsh here, and then I'm going to be kind. That's not how God does it. God's attributes are not juggled in the air. He exercises all of them. God is always, at the same time, all of His attributes. In fact, justice and judgment are sometimes a very loving expression of God's nature, even toward those who are being judged. It is the loving thing to do to all of God's creation for Him to judge sin. So even when God judges the unbeliever in his unrighteousness in hell, that is the loving thing for God to do. That is the expression of God's love. God's love for His glory. God's love for His creation. God's love for His character, His nature, His reputation, His fame, His honor. God's love for His people. God's love for His plan. It is an expression of God's love even when His love is expressed. Uh, even, even when God is in turn wrathful towards those who are deserving of His wrath. So we need to keep that in mind. Sometimes in, there are perfect demonstrations of all the characteristics of God's nature in one event. For instance, the cross. We think of the cross being this way. We think of the cross in terms of it being an expression of God's love for us. God demonstrated His own love for us in that while we were yet sinners, what? Christ died for us. Romans 5, verse 8. That is a demonstration of the love of God. But do not forget that it is also a demonstration of God's righteousness and His justice and His wrath against sin. In fact, the love of Christ on the cross means next to nothing if you do not see it against the backdrop of it also being an expression of God's justice and God's wrath against sin. When we understand that the cross is the the meeting of God's justice and God's mercy, it is the meeting of God's wrath and God's love in one place, that He poured out His wrath on one who was undeserving, so that He might pour out His grace on those who are undeserving, namely us, then we see the love of God and the wrath of God even in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, we are considering today the love of the Savior in John chapter 13. And I, I wanted to mention that, that we need to keep these things in balance and never think in terms of any of God's attributes that God is only this. He is always everything that He is. And He never ceases to be anything that He is. I know I don't have to tell you keep God's attributes in balance. You know this. But sometimes it's very good to just remind us of that up front and not assume that everybody is going to be thinking in those terms. So, God is always loving, and one of the loving things that God has done is to manifest His grace in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the subject matter of John chapter 13. And your Bibles are open there. We're going to... Your Bibles are, but mine isn't. Can I borrow one of your Bibles? John chapter 13. And here we see the love and the grace of Christ on display. Paul says that the love of God toward us who are in Christ Jesus is a love that surpasses knowledge. In fact, he says in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 19, he wants us to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled up with all the fullness of God. Now let me ask you a question. That's kind of a curious statement. How do you know something that is unknowable? 
Know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge. It's almost as if Paul says, you can't know this, but I want you to know it. You're not going to know it. But I want you to know this. I want you to know the unknowable. How do you do that? Well, in one sense, we do understand and we do know the love of Christ. Do we not? We experience it. We see it. His Spirit testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. The love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the presence of the Holy Spirit. We, we sense that love. We feel that love at times stronger than at others. We, we recognize that love. We are banking and counting our eternity on the reality of that love. Sometimes we feel it in very palpable ways. We are aware of that love. And so we know it. And we look at the cross and we see it. But let me ask you this. Do we know all of the love of God for us in Christ Jesus? Have we plumbed its depths? Have we plumbed and fathomed its, its very bottom and its outreaches? This, this infinite and eternal love, which really is, in one sense, beyond being known. And I believe that eternity will be the, the constant, perpetual, day-after-day discovery of different aspects of that love for all of eternity without ever coming to its end. At no point in this life, certainly, can we say, I, I know everything there is to know about the love of God and how it is expressed and how it works with everything. I, I have felt it all. I have plumbed the depths of it. I have seen the farthest reaches of it. We'll never be able to say that because it is a love that surpasses uh, knowledge. It is, in one sense, completely unknowable, and yet we... We know it, but we know it only in a glimpse. And the perfect expression of all of God's attributes is the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. He who was the eternal Word became flesh and manifested Himself in the flesh. And being in the flesh, we beheld the very nature and the character and all that can be seen with human eyes of God's nature, including His love. And we see the expression of that in John 13. And that is to where we now turn our attention. John chapter 13 is somebody who I don't think has ever heard me preach before in the Gospel of John and was here last week said, are you going to go through a bit slower this week? As if, you know, kind of the understanding was five chapters a week. Really? Seriously? Uh, no, that's what we did last week. We covered an overview of chapters 13 through 17. We're not doing 18 through 21 today. We are going to go back and we re rewind now to the back of the beginning of chapter 13 and we're going to hit the brakes as it were. And after last week, dealing only with one verse this week is going to feel like we have just got stuck in the slew of despair. Uh, we're not going there. We are going to cover a lot of material today. Looking at the love of Christ, and there's far more, of course, that could be said than I have said or can say. In John 13, there are three events. I'm going to remind you of these. I covered with them last week. Three events. The foot washing, Jesus washing the feet of the disciples. Judas, the betrayer, is identified and dismissed. And then the third event is Peter's betrayal, uh, sorry, Peter's denial is predicted. Uh, the feet washing, the identification and dismissal of the betrayer, and the denial of Peter is predicted. Those are the three events. But before we even get to the foot washing, John spends four verses, verses 1 through 4, sort of setting up the evening, um, introducing some themes that are going to carry through all five of the next uh, these five next chapters. And it is marvelous how he does this. There is so much going on in these first four verses. I told you that last week. There is a lot of theology packed in here. There are a lot of events that are, that are in here. There are a lot of people mentioned, and I just want you to notice the characters that are mentioned in these first four verses. Now, before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, and that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. With three, three characters there mentioned. Do you notice them? Jesus, his own, that's a group of characters, that would be us. Jesus, his own, and the Father. And then in verse 2, during the supper, the devil having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, got up from the supper and laid aside his garments and taking a towel, he girded himself. There are a lot of people introduced in, in that section. 
We have Judas. We have the devil. We have Jesus. We have his own. And we have the Father. All five of them. And, and like players in a, in a massive divine drama, all five of these characters are present here. And, and they are all sort of at the beginning of this discourse, the farewell discourse. All of them are introduced here as well as a bunch of themes that we will see unfold for the next five chapters. The disciples, Jesus going to the Father, Jesus having come from the Father, the betrayal of Judas, um, the devil's part in all of this, uh, the, the, the theme of love, and the theme of Jesus praying and loving His own, all of that is mentioned here in the first four verses. And all of those themes come up over and over again through these first five chapters. So let me give you a brief outline of verses 1 through 4. In verse 1, we see the Savior's love for His own. The Savior's love for His own in verse 1, and that's what we're covering today. And then the Savior's service to His own in verses 2 through 4, which we'll cover next week. The Savior's love for His own, and then the Savior's service to His own. So we're just looking at verse 1. Let's read it again so we, we have it in our minds. Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that His hour had come, and that He would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved His own who were in the world, He loved them to the end. Now we are not very far into this discourse before we, we come face to face with the reality that there is a change of themes going on in John chapter 13, verse 1. A change of themes. I mentioned to you last week all of the differences between the first 12 chapters of John's Gospel and these five chapters that make up the farewell discourse in chapters 13 through 17. A bunch of differences. One of them which I had never noticed until this week as I was studying through this. I was reading in Leon Morris's commentary on John, which I think, by the way, is, is probably next to J.C. Ryle's, the single best commentary that I have on John's Gospel. And Leon Morris noted how different the word use is in the second half of John as opposed to the first half of John. And let me give you an example of it. The word life, life, L-I-F-E, life, which we have seen as an eternal life, we've seen this over and over through the first 12 chapters. In the first 12 chapters, the word life appears 50 times. In the first 12 chapters, the word light, as opposed to darkness, appears 32 times. And in the first 12 chapters, the Greek word for God's divine love, agape, occurs six. Life, 50. Light, 32. Love, six. Now compare that to these five chapters with the farewell discourse, where the word life appears six times, the word light appears zero times, and the word love appears 31 times. What accounts for that difference in language and difference in emphasis and theme? The audience. Who's Jesus speaking to? His own. What is His relationship with His own? Well, He loves them. When He is addressing the crowd, His emphasis and His theme is entirely different. Now, I don't think that I could build or close my case for this on just that observation alone. But I would be willing to say that certainly... The idea of God's love is not the appeal of the Gospel. The idea of God's love is not the appeal of the Gospel. When Jesus was speaking to the unbelieving crowds, those hostile to Him, to even fake disciples, He didn't talk about love. He talked about light, and He talked about life. Because that is what the unbeliever needs. Light and life. In other words, Jesus didn't stand in the temple and say, I love you! I love you, everybody, just, I love you. I have a, a U-shaped hole in my heart, and I'm going to be unhappy for all of eternity unless you accept me into your heart, and then you'll feel my heart, and, and we'll all be loving. Please don't reject me. I love you. That wasn't the appeal of the Gospel. You know what he said to him, to them? If you believe in me, you will have life. What does the unbeliever need? Life. Does the unbeliever think he needs love? Does the unbeliever need love? The world loves him. His people love him. He loves other people. 
Some unbelievers' lives are filled with love, but you know what they're not filled with? Light or life. And so the appeal of the gospel is if you follow him, if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, he will give you the light of life. You are in darkness, Jesus said, and you love darkness, and your mind is in darkness, and, and darkness surrounds you, and you're a slave to darkness, and you're a slave to death because you're dead in your trespasses and sins. And if you come to me and if you will believe in me, I will give you eternal life, and you will have the light of life, and you will walk in darkness no more. That is, that is the demand of the gospel. The, un, the unrighteous person doesn't need love. You know what he needs? Righteousness. He needs life. He needs to be regenerated by the Spirit of God. And so the emphasis of Jesus when talking to the crowds is light and life. And the emphasis of Jesus when discussing with His disciples who were walking in the light and had the light with them and had eternal life, His emphasis to them was love. And so Jesus expounds upon love with the disciples. He expands upon light and life with unbelievers. There is a distinction being drawn between those who are not His, who He addresses in the first 12 chapters, and those who are His, whom he addresses in chapters 13 through 17. So, verse 13, chapter 13, verse 1. Now, before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now, there is some question. What does the phrase, before the feast of the Passover, refer to? Some people understand the, the phrase, before the feast of the Passover, to refer to the supper mentioned in verse 2, where John writes, during supper. And so they would say, see, this John is saying that the supper mentioned in verse 2 took place prior to Jesus' celebration of the Passover with his disciples. So some people would say that this supper that is described here in John 13 is a separate supper from the last supper where Jesus instituted communion. And they would argue that the lack of mention of any communion or institution of communion of the Lord's Supper in chapter 13 is evidence that Jesus was. Uh, this is a separate meal altogether. But the problem is when you read the details of chapter 13 and then you compare that with the details of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and what they say about this meal, the details are too strikingly similar to allow us to think that these were two separate meals. Because we have both the betrayal of Jesus, or, yeah, betrayal by Judas, and the identification of Judas, and the dismissal of Judas, and the uh, prediction of Peter's denial, all of those happening at this meal. And that is the meal that is described here in chapter 13. So it almost makes no sense at all to think that that these are two different meals at which all of the same events unfolded. So that what then does the word before the feast of the Passover refer to? The very closest verbal form that is to that phrase in the Greek text is the word knowing. And that is what I think before the feast of the Passover is a reference to. John is simply saying, Jesus knew before the feast of the Passover even began, Jesus knew that His hour had come. Now does that make sense in light of what we have seen as we've worked our way through John's Gospel. Does Jesus know all men? Does Jesus know all things? Did Jesus know what was happening and unfolding? Was He in sovereign control of that? He certainly was. And that's all John is saying. John is saying at the beginning of this chapter, beginning of this final night of Jesus with His disciples, John is saying that nothing that took Him by surprise, not the betrayal of Judas, not the desertion of the disciples, not the denial of Peter, none of those things took Jesus by surprise. Because he knew before the Passover had even started, before this week had even begun, Jesus knew all things. And he knows everything that is taking place here. So that's what is being referred to here. Now the Passover feast, what is, what is that? We're familiar with that from the book of Exodus, what the Passover is. Uh, if this is the Passover feast that Jesus is celebrating with his disciples, then that would mean that this is taking place on Thursday night. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all mentioned that Jesus died on the day of preparation, the day before the Sabbath, which was a Friday, and it was the day of preparation during the Passover festival or the Passover celebration. That puts the death of Christ 
on a Friday afternoon, and it puts this final meal with his disciples on Thursday night. So the chronology would unfold something like this. Before the feast of the Passover even began, Jesus knew everything was about to happen. And here's what happened. All these players are coming together. Judas is coming together. The devil is there. The disciples are there. They're in the upper room. They're having this meal together. After the meal, there is this extended time of teaching that we get in chapters 14 through 17. And then after that, Jesus is arrested in the garden. He goes through the trials during the night. Early the next morning, he is scourged. And then by uh, the afternoon, he is put on a cross and hung on a cross outside of Jerusalem. All of this will unfold within 24 hours of the events that we are reading here. But then we ask the question, there seems to be, and I'm raising this issue because you probably wouldn't mention, you wouldn't notice this issue if I didn't bring it up. But I'm going to bring up this issue because it's an apparent contradiction between John and the Synoptic Gospels. So I want to raise this issue so you're aware of it and then tell you how we deal with this apparent contradiction. Here's the apparent contradiction. If you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they make it sound as if Jesus uh, clearly celebrated the Last Supper, the, the Passover meal with his disciples on a Thursday evening. But later on in the Gospel of John, John gives a little detail that seems to throw sort of that to the wind a little bit. I want you to look over at John chapter 18, verse 28. John chapter 18, verse 28. So this is after the final discourse with the disciples. This is after Jesus has been arrested in the garden. This is after Peter's denial of Jesus, which takes place in verse 25. Verse 28, Then they led Jesus from Caiaphas into the praetorium, and it was early, and they themselves did not enter into the praetorium, so that they would not be defiled, but might eat. That word looked like call. That word, yeah. But that they might eat the Passover. So what is going on there? You have the religious leaders of the nation of Israel who, after the trial of Jesus, they didn't enter into a place where there were Gentiles because they didn't want to be ceremonially unclean so that they would not be able then to eat the Passover. Well, if that's Friday morning and the religious leaders of the nation have not eaten the Passover meal yet, then that means that the religious leaders of the nation, they're celebrating Passover on a Friday. What then is Jesus doing celebrating Passover on a Thursday evening with His disciples? How is it that Matthew, Mark, and Luke make it out that this evening meal celebrated with the disciples was on a Thursday night, but John gives us that little detail saying that the nation itself, the leaders of the nation, had not celebrated that Passover meal yet, even until Friday morning. And that was yet for them. Friday evening. How do we reconcile that? Some people have just said, look, John got it wrong. I don't believe John got it wrong. I believe that there's another way of seeing this, and it's a way of harmonizing the gospel accounts. John MacArthur, in his commentary on the gospel of John, offers a concise and helpful solution to this, and I'll read it to you. He writes this, the answer lies in understanding that the Jews had two different methods of reckoning days. Ancient Jewish sources suggest that Jews from the northern part of Israel, including Galilee, where Jesus and most of the twelve were from, counted days from sunrise to sunrise. Most of the Pharisees apparently also used the method. On the other hand, the Jews in the southern region of Israel counted days from sunset to sunset. That would include the Sadducees, who of necessity lived in the vicinity of Jerusalem because of their connection with the temple. Though no doubt confusing at times, that dual method of reckoning days would have had practical benefits at Passover, allowing the feast to be celebrated on two consecutive days. That would have eased the crowded conditions in Jerusalem, especially in the temple, where all the lambs would not have to be killed on the same day. Thus, there is no contradiction between John and the synoptics. Being Galileans, Jesus and the Twelve would have viewed Passover day as running from sunrise on Thursday to sunrise on Friday. They would have eaten their Passover meal on Thursday evening. The Jewish leaders, the Sadducees, however, would have viewed it as beginning at sunset on Thursday and ending at sunset on Friday, and they would have eaten their Passover meal on Friday evening. End quote. That makes sense? 
So what we have going on there is in the synoptics, they are describing the chronology of events as it unfolds from the perspective of Jesus and the disciples and their observation or observance of the Passover meal. But then in John, we get John taking these same events and describing them from the perspective of the Jewish leadership who would wait until Friday to celebrate the Passover meal. They're both describing the same events, one from one perspective pertaining to one group of people and another from another perspective pertaining to a different group of people. There's no contradiction there at all. Of course, you weren't even aware there was a contradiction until I brought it up. The key to all of this is to keep in mind, keep in mind very clearly, that the point of John in this and with the synoptics is that Jesus himself is the Passover lamb. That's the symbolism of it. Uh, the Passover, of all the feasts, of all the festivals, of all the symbolism in the Old Testament, the Passover celebration was the one that is the most rich in symbolism in terms of redemption. And therefore, it is the most rich in fulfillment in terms of what Jesus did in that as our Passover lamb. Because of His blood that was shed for us, we have access to the throne of grace. Because of His blood, we have atonement, forgiveness of our sins. Because of His blood, He secured on behalf of His people All good things. Everything that He did. Because the atonement needed nothing to complete it, nothing to finish it, nothing to sort of round it out. It was was a perfect and complete atonement. And He as our Passover Lamb has secured our forgiveness of all of our sins so that death will pass over us. And we, we will pass through the grave. Just like passing through a veil, as it were. And because, all because of what Christ has done. Now at this point we could take a couple of weeks and I was tempted to do this, to jump off into what the Passover is to look at the symbolism and how it was celebrated by the Jews and history of it and when it was instituted and to go back into Exodus and do all of that. And uh, that would have thrilled some of you to death to do that. Um, It would have disappointed others of you for to get off track like that. To move on is going to disappoint some of you and and thrill others of you to death. So here's what we're going to do. Since there is no keeping everybody happy, we're simply going to let the text drive our discussion of these events and we are going to move on. Uh, If there was an institution of the Lord's Supper, which maybe we'll deal with that sometime soon, then I think we would take some more time to kind of talk about the symbolism and and what would have been going on there that evening. But since John doesn't mention that, uh, we're just going to mention Jesus is the Passover lamb. Keep that in mind. That's the point of the text. Now let's move on. John uh, 13, verse 1. Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, knowing that his hour had come. Now, the fact that Jesus knows something is mentioned twice in these four verses. Once in verse 1, once in verse 3. In verse 1, his knowing something is connected to uh, his loving of his own. Uh, in verse 3, his knowing of certain things, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand, that knowing is connected to his service. His humbling, self-sacrificial, loving service to his people. So we'll deal with the second knowing in verse 3 next week. Today we look at this knowing. What did, does it say in John that Jesus knew that his hour had come? Well, that, is fr- that phrase, he knew that his hour had come, that phrase, that his hour or the hour, is something that we've seen all the way through John's Gospel on multiple occasions. And I won't belabor you by giving you all of the reference to that because there are many of them. But it is sufficient to say that in, when John uses that term, sometimes he's speaking of one aspect of that hour and sometimes of another aspect of that hour. For instance, in John chapter 12, he uses that hour to describe the glory of God that is attached to the death of Christ. In John chapter 12, verse 27, Jesus says, Now my soul has become troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came out of heaven. I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. And there, this hour, which is the the time of his death, his departure, is connected with the glory of God. And what is emphasized there is the fact that at this hour, it is the glory of the Father and the glory of the triune God that is being manifested. 
At other times, John refers to this hour and he connects it with uh, Jesus simply departing and leaving as he does here in this text. Other times, John, as in John chapter 7, mentions the hour of Christ and what he has in mind is the timing specifically of his death. Now, all of that is involved. Of course, his death results in the glory of God and also results in him leaving his people. But John is emphasizing here the reality that Jesus was leaving his people. That's, that's the cloud that hangs over this discourse. The hour that he would, having come forth from the Father, that he would go back to the Father, knowing that that hour of his departure had come. Then Jesus has love for his disciples, and having loved his own who were in the world to the end. And that when John says Jesus was leaving, uh, he is using a, a very euphemistic way of referring to death. You notice that? Talk about death there. Really for us believers, leave, uh, death is nothing more than us leaving. We speak of people dying. I understand we use that language. It's, it's very it's shorthand to say, he died. He died. Really, it's more accurate to say he moved. He used to live here, now he lives somewhere else. He still lives, but he moved. Those who have died have actually just moved. And that's all death is for the believer. It's not the cessation of existence. It's not soul sleep. It's not a long nap. It's none of that. It's not purgatory. Death for the believer is simply moving from here to there. For the believer, because of what Christ has done, our death is nothing more than going to the Father. I should say nothing less, because that's a lot, isn't it? It's nothing less than us just going to the Father. We leave here, and we go to the Father. And that's how John describes the death of Christ. Now look what he says, that Jesus knowing this, and that, by the way, is a reference to his sovereignty. He's in control of all of this. We read in verse 2 that the devil and Judas are there, and that the betrayer is present. Let us not think for a moment that any of these events that unfold in this chapter, that any of them are outside of the sovereign control of Christ in all of this. He is sovereign over all of it. He is not the victim of the devil's designs. He is not the, the victim of Judas's betrayal. He is not a victim in any of this. He is giving his life for his sheep, as he promised in John chapter 10, when he said, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down of my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. And this is just another way of John reminding us that in all of this, Jesus knows every detail. The desertion of the disciples, the betrayal of Judas, the denial of Peter, all of it. He knows all of it. And even knowing all of that, look what John says, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them even to the very end. He loved his own who were in the world. And that phrase, in the world, is significant because it actually stamps sort of the the tone and temper of the whole evening. Of the 78 times that John uses the word world in his entire gospel, 40 of them, 40 of them occur in this discourse with the disciples. That is the, that is the pressing concern of this. Jesus knew that he was leaving his disciples and where was he leaving them? In the world. Is that a big deal? It is a big deal because the world is always hostile to believers and it will be increasingly hostile to believers and it has always been hostile to believers. So that is the concern. Jesus loved His own and He loved them even knowing that they were in the world. And so John's concern in this final discourse, and I believe that one of the purposes that Jesus gives this final discourse, is to equip and prepare His disciples, and thus us by our reading and studying of this, to prepare us for our mission in the world, because that's the concern. He loves His own. He was leaving the world, but Him leaving them behind is no measure of any lack of His love. He loved His own who were in the world, and He loved them to the fullest, all the way to the end. Now, there are two elements to this love, and I want you to notice them. First of all, 
First of all, the objects of this love, and then second, the extent of this love. And we'll deal with these quickly. The objects of the love and the extent of the love. He loved his own who were in the world. Now that phrase, his own, is something that we have, we have already seen time and time again in John. Who is, who are his own? What does that refer to? Well, it's wrong for us to just say, well, I think it refers to this, or I think it refers to that. John has already told us exactly who his own are. And he's told us at great length. And so when we read a phrase like, he loved his own, we have to back up from the context and say, what does John mean when he refers to those who are his own, Christ's own? And we are familiar with the long explanations that Jesus gave in John 10 and John 6 of who his own are and what his relationship with his own is. So I could, for instance, and I won't do this, we could turn to John chapter 6, and we would be reminded that all that the Father has given to the Son, belong to the Son, and the Father gave this people to the Son so that the Son would save them. And He committed to the Son the salvation and the securing and the raising up of this entire company of God's people on the very last day. And the Son promises that all that the Father has given to Him will come to Him, not some of them, but all of them, and He will cast none of them out ever. But instead, He will give eternal life to them and He will raise all of them up on the last day. Why? Because that is the will of the Father. And Jesus says it. The will of my Father is this, that of all that He has given to me, I lose nothing but raise them all up on the last day. So who are His own? They are the ones described in John 6, whom the Father gave to the Son, whom the Son will save, whom the Son died for, whom the Son will regenerate and raise up and give eternal life to and raise up on the last day without losing a single one. Those are His own. Or we could turn to John chapter 10 and see where Jesus identifies His own again, but using an entirely different metaphor, speaks of the sheep. And He describes us, His own, as His sheep. Now, is everybody His sheep? Clearly not, because in John chapter 10, verse 26, Jesus said to the Pharisees, For this reason you do not believe, because you are not of My sheep. If you were My sheep, that is, if you belong to Me, you would hear My voice, you would believe, you would come to Me, I would give you eternal life, and I would keep you and secure you so that no man may ever snatch you out of My hand. The Father who has given them, that is the sheep, to Me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand either. Because I and the Father are one. So who are His own? His own are the ones identified in John chapter 6 as those given by the Father to the Son. They are the sons. His own are those identified in John chapter 10 as the sheep. That is not all of humanity. And so John here in in, in this discourse, begins by reminding us, Jesus has a people, and it is those people whom He has loved to the end. And then in John chapter 17, this entire discourse finds its culmination in that great high priestly prayer where Jesus prays for, guess whom? His own. In fact, He says in that prayer, I do not pray for those who are in the world, but for the ones that You have given to Me, that they may know Me, that they may know You, that they may be with us, that we may be one, that they may be glorified with me. He prays for his own. This whole discourse is about his own. And so what it love is it that John is describing in chapter 13, verse 1, when he says he loved his own to the end. It is those who belong to the Son because the Father has selected a group of humanity and given them to the Son. They are his sheep. They are his own. And he loves them. There's a parallel phrase in John chapter 15 and verse 29. No, it's not verse 15, verse 29, because there's only 27 chapters, or 27 verses. John 15:19, where Jesus says, if, if you were of the world, the world would love its own. See the parallel phrasing? If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world because of this, the world hates you. 
So everybody's involved in a love relationship. The world has its own, and the world loves its own. And the world pours affection on those who belong to its system. And Christ has His own who, He says, are chosen out of the world and given to Him by the Father. And the Son pours His affection on those who are His own. So who is it that Jesus loves to the very end? With a perfect and complete love, who is it? It is His own. Now John does not say, and I need to speak carefully so that we can think carefully at this point, John does not say that this love is a love that Christ lavishes or has for all people equally. In fact, if you insert that into the text and read that into the text, you do an injustice to the text. And you, I think, do away with the distinction that John intends to make that singles us as his sheep out for this special love. Some people think that God has a, a just a general love and he loves all men equally without distinction and without discrimination. That is not biblical. God has all kinds of different loves. He has a love for His creatures. He has a love for His creation. There is an inter-Trinitarian love. There is a love that Christ has for the nation of Israel. There is a love that God has for the lost. There is a love that God has for His glory. And there is a love that God has for His bride, the church. And it is a different love. In fact, the distinguishing and the distinction between those loves is essential to the entire meaning of Ephesians chapter 5. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. What did He mean by that? Love your wives like you love every other woman because Christ loves the church just like He loves everybody else? Or does the Savior have a special and distinct, a distinguishing and a discriminating love for His bride, the church, that has its end result in the saving and sanctifying and securing of that bride for the glory of the Father? Does Christ have a love for His bride, the church, that He does not lavish on everybody else? He doesn't. Does God have nothing but hatred for the non-elect? I don't believe that. I don't believe that God has nothing but hatred for them. I don't believe that God delights in the death and the destruction of the wicked at all. I believe that even the love that God has for those who are lost and will be eternally lost, even that love is a love that we cannot fathom. But friends, if that love is a love that we cannot fathom, what then do we say about the love that Christ has for His bride, the church? Now somebody object and say, no, 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 no. God loves all men equally without distinction. Without distinction, without discrimination, it's just a general love and everybody is equal. There's no distinguishing between one or the other or making one to differ from the other. It's just an equal love like that. Really? You, men, I hope, have a love for your bride that you do not share with every other woman in this room. You don't. You reserve to yourself the right, the privilege, and the freedom to distinguish and discriminate in the giving of your love to different people. That is a pure love and a higher love. Now you say, no, no, no. God, because He is holier and higher and purer and better and more eternal and perfect than we are, He has a perfect love that does not discriminate. Let me ask you this question. If you started to love your wife like you love every other woman so you could be like God, would your wife consider that an upgrade? Would she suddenly say, you know, he loves me the same as he does the woman behind me and the woman in front of me and the woman we met on the street? He loves all men equally, but he's just so much like God. Or would you say, no, that is not a higher love. That is a lower love. It is an impure love that does not make distinctions and discriminations. The love that Christ has for his church is a discriminating and a distinct love. Does he love other people? He certainly does. But there is a redeeming, sanctifying, perfect eternal and infinite love. It is a special love that expresses itself in different ways for the church than he does for those who are not his own. And that's John's point. Having loved his own who were in the world, 
He did this for them. Having loved his own, it is a distinguishing and a discriminating love, and it is the purest and the highest form of love. And believer, you ought to thank God for that love, and you ought to rejoice in it and bask in it. When we say that the love of God is a distinguishing and a discriminating love, and that he does not love all men equally the same way, some people think, well, that sounds horrible. It sounds horrible until you understand what we're saying. And suddenly it makes sense. Suddenly you understand that there is something in the relationship between a man and his bride that, it, that is marked out as, as something illustrative of what exists between Christ and his church. There is a special relationship there. That we look at the one and we say, oh, I get it. I get it. That type of love. That type of sacrifice that distinguishes and gives itself for one and not another. That is a distinguishing and a discriminating love. And if you're still not convinced, then let me just ask you this. Do you think that the love that God showed for Moses was exactly the same as the love that God showed to Pharaoh? Do you believe that the love that God showed for Moses in showing him compassion was indistinguishable from the love that God showed to Pharaoh even when he hardened Pharaoh in his sin? Exact same love? Does God love the nation of Israel the same as He loved the Amorites, the idolatrous Amorites? No, certainly He does not. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, God says of the nation of Israel, You alone, of all the peoples of the earth, I have chosen. I have set my love upon you. Why? Because you are a better and mightier and greater nation than everybody else? Nope. No, but I have set my love and my affection upon you and I have given you my covenant and I have shown you my love. That's a distinguishing and discriminating love. Is the love of God for Jacob and the love of God for Esau the same? Nope. Twice, God says, Jacob I've loved, Esau I've hated. Now you may say, I'm uncomfortable with the thought that God would hate somebody. I understand that. I'm uncomfortable with that as well. But even if we grant, even if we, just to, just to grant that distinction, we have to at least say that those verses, at least, probably more than this, but at least they mean that there is a distinguishing difference between the love God had for Jacob and the love that God had for Esau. At least those verses mean that the love that God showed to Jacob and his descendants was of such a nature as to make, by comparison, the love that God had for Esau look like hatred. At least we have to go that far. And the minute you read that verse, you have to say, there is a separate love that God has for one as opposed to the other, and it is for His glory, and it is for the good of His people. So he says, who are the objects of that love? John says, he loved, having loved his own, whom he was leaving in the world, he loved them to the end. Now, to the end is the extent of that love. The objects of the love are his own. We already know who his own are. His sheep, his people. John is distinguishing them from the rest of the world. In fact, he distinguishes out later on Judas. Right? I've chosen you, but Judas was not amongst those who we would, in this verse, consider his own. He is a devil. He is a betrayer. He is an unbeliever. He's talking about his own, as opposed to men like Judas, who are false believers. Now, what is the extent of that love? To the end. What does that mean, to the end? To the end could mean a couple of different things. The word end there just simply means perfection, completion, to its result, to its purpose, to its end result, to its, its finality. That's kind of the idea there. And some have suggested that maybe what is meant there when he says that God loved his own even to the, or Christ loved his own even to the end, that what is meant there is just to the end when he died and left this world. And knowing that he was leaving the world and going back to the Father, he loved them all the way up until that point where he left the world. And then my question would be, that raises a question, doesn't it? What about now? He loved his own up until... That was 2,000 years ago. Where do I stand today? If he loved his own until the time that he left, what then do we say about today? But I think that John has something far deeper, far broader, and far better in mind. When he says that Christ loved his own even to the end, he is not talking about the chronological duration of that love, 
but the infinite expression and, lo- and, and extension of that love, the broad sweep of it. He loved His own to the fullest, to the largest possible extent, meaning that that love is without anything that would make it incomplete. It is without break. It is without pause. It is without defect. It is without glitch. It is without end. It is absolutely perfect. It is final. It is complete. It is full. It is accomplishes its purpose. Any term you want to use to get to the, the ultimate of the ultimate of the end, the purpose, the extent of it, that's the love of God for His own. So here's what it boils down to for you and I. I belong to Him because I am His sheep. I've heard His voice. I've come to Him. He's given me eternal life and He has, he has snatched me from the flames of hell because I belong to Him. This promise is for me as well and for you if you're in Christ, that He loves His own who are in the world. That's, that's you. doesn't mean He doesn't love those who are outside of the world, but that the concern is with those whom He has left in the world, you and I. So He loves us how much? To what extent? To what time? Always and forever and in eternity. And so that love of the Father, you don't even call it the love of the Father. We, we have to, to be fair, we have to say it is the love of the triune God that is manifested toward His people. It is the love of the Father, it is the love of the Son, and it is the love of the Holy Spirit. It is that infinite and eternal and endless and boundless and bottomless and measureless and, and beyond comprehension, surpassing love that we started talking about at the beginning. That love is the love that God directs for the good of His people. And by the way, that love of God secures us. And you know why? Because it is not my love for God that saves me. It is His love for me that has reached down and saved me. And He knew this, and He loved me to this extent, even though He knows my weaknesses. And He knows that I am just like Peter and have denied Him more than three times. I'm just like Peter. And I'm just as much a sinner as any of the disciples sitting at the table that evening. And He loves me anyway. And he sees my sin. He sees the sin that I don't even see in me. I see my sin and I think, how can he love me? That amazes me. Well, he sees far more sin in me. Even my best of days, he would have to tell me that it, it was not the best of days from what I see. And yet, in spite of all my weaknesses and in spite of my sin and in spite of my inconsistencies and in spite of my lack of love for him, my lack of my love for him grows hot and grows cold. His love for me never grows and never has grown. On this night, this Thursday night before his crucifixion, his love for His own burned just as hot and, and passionate and intimate and, and infinite as ever it will. And after I have been with Him 10,000 years, He will not love me one more iota then than He does right now. And He does not love me any more today than He did yesterday or a thousand years ago or back when the Father gave Him to me in eternity past. His love is perfect. It is infinite. It is boundless. It never grows. And it never changes because He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So my security rests not on my love for Him because that would change. And, and, if, and if my security rested on that, I would be insecure. That is not security. But my, my security rests upon the fact that He loves His own, even unto the very end. There's comfort in that, right? You understand the significance of that? If John or Peter or James or those who were left in the world, if they thought, oh, He loves me the same as He does the Pharisees. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Wait a second. What am I to do with that? You mean, Lord, you make no distinction between me and the Pharisees as far as, as your love for me? But then when you realize that the love that we're talking about is the love that He has for His own, suddenly you realize, I'm His. That's the love that I have. I would be insecure at best if the love that He has for me was indistinguishable from the love that He had for Pharaoh or an idolatrous Amorite high priest. 
But the love that he has for own is the love that is mirrored in the relationship that Christ has with his bride, the church. Now that doesn't mean that that doesn't mean that God's people will never endure pain or hardship or suffering or persecution. Some kind, sometimes Christ appoints that for his bride, for his people, but his love does not does not fail. His love does not diminish at all. He left us in the world. Yes, he did, but that does is no reflection on the nature or the character or the eternality of that love. And sometimes he does appoint for us persecution and pain and suffering and hardships, but his love is never ceasing and it is never ending and it is always there and it is always eternal. We may not feel it like we always want to. It may not be as real to us at this moment as it is at this moment and it may be even less real at the next moment. But that's no reflection on his love for his bride, the church. It's just a reflection on our ability to understand it and apprehend it and to feel that love at any given time and that's just a reflection of our own sinfulness. I'll close with the words of an old hymn, The Love of God. Many of you probably know the words of this by heart. Could we with ink the ocean fill and were the skies of parchment made were every stock on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry nor could the scroll contain the whole though stretched from sky to sky. That is God's love for His bride, the church. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank You for this very very serious reminder of Your love for us. And we do not always feel it as we should. We do not always appropriated and appreciated like we should, but we know that it is always there for your word has revealed that we who are in Christ have nothing but the promise of your eternal and boundless love for us. And so we thank you for that. We thank you that the Savior loved those whom you gave to him and loved us enough to die on a cross to atone for our sin and to pay the sin price that we may be with you for all of eternity. We thank you that your appeal to us was not on the basis of this love, but on the basis of what we truly needed to stand before you and be with you, and that is righteousness. And having shown us that we lack that righteousness and that we are sinners, sheep, having gone astray, you then opened our eyes to that need and showed us what we needed. And then let us behold Christ, in whom is the satisfaction for all of our needs and what is necessary for us to be with you. And we thank you for that, the perfect sacrifice, a perfect Passover lamb. He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. So we're grateful for that. We thank You for that righteousness. And we thank You that we are in Christ. We know that it is by Your doing and that we love You only because You first loved us. And we came to You only because You first came to us. And we called out to You only because You first called our name and called us to Yourself. And so we thank You for that initiating, discriminating, distinguishing love of Christ that He has for us. We thank You for the security that that brings. And we rest in it. And we pray that You would... Cause us in our, in our week this coming week to think more and more upon what Christ has done and who He is and the love that we enjoy both now and forever. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.